Good morning, Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. How are you? How are you? <laughs> um, this song that we just played this morning, it is called By the Grace of God by Bethel. And it's a song I kind of like flagged a while ago and kind of forgot about and I was going through some things and I found it again I'm like man this is a beautiful song and it's a beautiful message I just want to read um, if you didn't catch what the lyrics were on the chorus it says um, let me just find it here his love is like the mighty ocean his love for me will never stop oh his arms are strong enough to carry me through it all by the grace of God I thought you know this song is really a powerful reminder of what we need this this last year and the year going forward that God has it all for us so I want to take a second to read um, a passage of scripture together Isaiah 43 1 through 5 which really enforces that idea that God is in it all with us if you could just read with me but now this is what the Lord says he who created you Jacob he who formed you Israel Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the West. Isn't that just a beautiful reminder of what we have in God? So I'm going to pass it over to Pastor Tim. Well, good morning. It is good to be gathered here with you this morning. For those of you who may be visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. And it's good to be gathered here with you this morning. Just a couple of announcements before we continue on in our worship time. One is that starting in October, mid-October, we're going to start a series of, of small groups. And in those small groups, we're going to go through this book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I meant to have a picture up here. I forgot, so sorry about that. But this is the book, Gentle and Lowly by, by Dane Ortland. And and the first obvious question is, like, why this book? Right? Like, why, why this book? And a couple of reasons. One is that if, like, if you Google, like, best Christian books of 2020, you'll probably find this book listed. Right? It's Tim Challies, who's a blogger who I follow. He, at the end of every year, he, like, compiles the list of, like, consensus best books of 2020 for, by Christians. Right? And he, he, said, he said this about this book. There's no doubt as to the consensus favorite for books published in 2020, Gentle and Lowly. It was World Magazine's Accessible Theology Book of the Year and the Gospel Coalition's Popular Theology Book of the Year. Andrew Wilson says, It is a stunning book packed with beautiful truths expressed poignantly and applied wisely, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. While Christian Weatherall says, I'm on my second reading of Gentle and Lowly and highly, highly recommend it. Amid a difficult season of much weariness, 
Jesus knew I needed, I would need the reminder that he delights to save and strengthen his people. And so it's just this book of, is speaking of Jesus who describes himself as gentle and lowly. And it's expanding out like what that means that Jesus is gentle and lowly. And I think it's a really important book for us that we can think, especially when we sin, of thinking of Jesus as harsh and rebuking of our sin. But like Ortland here talks about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. I think it's a helpful book that way. And on top of that, like Crossway, who's the publisher of this book, I like got a, a generous donor who donated like hundreds of thousands of copies for any church who wanted to go through this book together to get free copies. So we got free copy from Crossway, so that helps as well, just offsetting any cost to the church. And so the value of the book combined with just it being low cost for our church, kind of those two things together, I think this would be a good book for our church to go through together. So we're going to start in mid-October. It's comes with a study guide as well that breaks the book down into 10 weeks. So we'll finish before Christmas. Um, there's also video discussions um, that Dane Orton, the author, leads through the book. And so my desire this morning in introducing this to you and then in also kind of talking about it, I just want to gauge interest in being part of one of these small groups. And so if you grabbed a bulletin this morning on your way in, there's a, there's a card in there, it looks like this. And so it's just a simple way for you to express interest, whether it's in just being part of a group, or if you'd be interested in actually leading the discussion for a group, or hosting a group in your house, or if you're already in a small group, if you'd be, would be interested in participating in this study with your current small group, you can kind of check there. And also get the chance to just... Um, list the dates that you would prefer along with contact information. So my goal right now this, this morning is just to kind of gauge interest in, in doing this study, to just kind of know what we're looking at in terms of what we have for people who would be willing to lead. And again, I said, as I said, we have DVDs where the, the author of the book kind of leads the discussion. Your role as a leader should be to facilitate. But then also a host and just be part of. So if you want to fill that card out, if you have any interest whatsoever, you can drop it in. Um, the box at the back of the sanctuary for where we put our, our tithes and offerings as well. And we will uh, be in touch about kind of the next steps in getting these started. And also, another announcement. So coming up in a couple of weeks, September 12th, will be our first week of kind of fall kickoff. We'll have our first week of Sunday school. And we'll have um, our first week of cross training, which is our kind of sermon discussion after the service here in the Thanks, right? So we'll, that'll all kind of start our kind of fall regular programming. will start September 12th. And one more announcement. I'm going to invite Elaine Altman up to kind of give us a little information about a, a ministry that they're kind of working on for, for seniors to gather together and um, do some activities together. Good morning. I keep forgetting how hard this is to do. Um, as Pastor said, we're starting a new seniors ministry, and we're looking for seniors that are interested in coming. Anybody 55 and over is welcome. We're going to start out September 26th just to get together and meet. We'll have a lunch. We'll serve lunch, <clears throat> so you don't have to bring anything. But it'll be after a cross training. 
And we just have some ideas that we'd like to go to Lake Drive in um, October, up to Lake Superior perhaps, if it isn't snowing. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, movies and potlucks and things like that. We'd like to meet about once a month. So, you know, anything, any ideas you have, bring them with you on the 26th. And um, in, in, we'll, take, we'll take care of that. And if you come up with a name for our group, there may be a prize for that. So. Thanks, Lynn. As we, we continue our, our time of worship this morning, one of the ways we want to invite you to, to worship is through giving of your tithes and offerings. We spoke a little bit last week about how right, we want to see giving as an act of worship, of giving back to God what He has so generously given to us. And not as something that like we, the church, expect or need, but that we want to provide the opportunity for you right, to give back to God what he has so graciously given to you and to further his mission here in, in Three Lakes. So if you want to give, you can, you can drop those in the boxes in the back of the sanctuary or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. As we, we continue to worship, let's pray and come before our Father together. Father, we thank you this morning for just a chance as your people to gather together in this place and to come together as your people and to come into your presence and to worship you as we prepare to sing for that you would quiet our heart, quiet our minds, that other distractions would fall away for the moment and that we could come before you thinking of the word we sing, truly worshiping you this morning. Father, we, we trust in your, your goodness towards each of us, even as we walk through hard times. We do acknowledge that there are people in the church who are walking through difficult and trying situations now, whether it's physical health or physical ailment or dealing with relational trials or other issues, but that you would be at work in the midst of those hard times to bring about your good purposes, that you would, we would see your glory revealed even in the midst of trial and difficulty. So we continue to pray for the church around the world and especially this week in the church in Afghanistan and people in Afghanistan in general, if they continue to deal with hard fallout from all the events over there. For that in the midst of that darkness, that pain, that suffering, even that would serve as a means of revealing your glory. That you would be at work to bring comfort to those who follow you in Afghanistan, who desperately need comfort and strength right now. God, would you, you be glorified now as we sing and as we hear your word. We bring glory to your name.
Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we continue in worship this morning, and I'll just spend some time in music here.
places too often. But God, you are faithful. And as we look to you, you remind us and you are you promised us that it is in Christ that our hope is found. As we trust what Christ has done for us on the cross is our great source of hope. And that be true for each of us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in, in 2004, Patrick McGinnis, who's an author, first coined the term FOMO as an acronym for the, the psychological condition known as fear of missing out. So that was 17 years ago. And in the 17 years since then, FOMO has quickly entered common usage. 
Uh, maybe the easiest way to see how a word kind of grows in usage these days is to look at the, the graph of how often people search for it in Google. Right, so here's, here's that graph. Right, so you can see like it's not used, not used, then over time it's taken off and become more and more commonly used. And the fact that this term has become so popular, right? This, the, this term for almost comes so popular that McGinnis published a book called Fear of Missing Out, right? He wrote a whole book about this phenomenon, this feeling. And now perhaps you're sitting there, you've never heard the term FOMO before, right? and maybe like the fact that you've never heard that term before, and you see the graph and it's seeing growing popularity, it makes you feel this sense of like, oh no, like I'm I'm missing something, right? <laughs> and like if that's you, and maybe you've never heard the term, but you've now felt the feeling, right? Like that is the feeling, right? the feeling that you've missed something important. Right? FOMO is defined by the experts at Wikipedia this way, right? like a social anxiety stemming from the belief that others might be having fun while the person experiencing the anxiety is not present. It is characterized by a desire to stay continually connected with what others are doing. FOMO is defined as a fear of regret, which may lead to concerns that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction, a novel experience, a memorable event, or a profitable investment. It is the fear that deciding not to participate is the wrong choice. Now, when you think about that definition, it may be not surprising that this graph follows a similar path of another graph. So if you look at this next graph here, this graph shows that the growth of various social media platforms over roughly the same time period. And so when we look at the two graphs, kind of next to each other, you can see a correlation. So we can see the two together, there's a growth of the use of FOMO kind of alongside the use of social media platforms. Right? There are a few of you out there right now who are like yelling, like correlation does not imply causation. Right? Like you're like, and so I, I know, right? I, I yell that in my head at TV, people on TV all the time. Right? But in this case, Right. Just because two graphs like, follow the same trajectory, I know it like, doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're correlated or they're, they cause each other. Right? So, for example, this graph, right, this is the number of people who drown as they're falling out of a fishing boat right? and the married right in Kentucky, right? And they, they, they go together. Right? And yet there's no reason to assume that one would cause the other one, right? They just happen to, to correlate. Right? And so, like, I understand, right? Causation, or correlation does not imply causation. They, these things can just be kind of freak coincidences. But in this case, like, I don't think the correlation is coincidental. But as one expert says, social networking creates many opportunities for FOMO. While it provides opportunity for social engagement, it offers an endless stream of activities in which any given person is not involved. Like, social media has this ability to make us aware of, like, every single stinking thing that our friends are doing. Like, every single event going on around us. And because of that, it fuels this feeling that we're missing out on something. Like, we could be doing something better at any given moment. And so, social media has really fueled this growth of feeling of missing out. But while the term... FOMO may be a recent invention, 
And while social media has certainly increased the feeling, like the feeling itself is not new. In fact, I think we see an example of it in, in the passage we're going to read today in the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning, looking at verses 28 through 36. So we're going, to, we're going to start reading. When we come to what I think is the example of FOMO in this passage, I'll stop and kind of point it out. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, we read this. About eight days after this, Jesus said, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And just a real quick side note here. Like Moses and Elijah here are described as men, but, but they appear in, in glorious splendor. And so it can be really easy to skip over some of the obvious things. But this passage like, speaks to like, the reality of eternal life. Right? Moses and Elijah lived thousands of years before this, and yet they're still described as men, right? not as angels, not as ghosts, but as men but who appear in glorious splendor. And they're talking with Jesus. Continuing in verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing, and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And I think this is where the FOMO comes in. Like Peter and John and James, right? they go away with Jesus to pray. Right? But not for the last time. While they're supposed to be praying, they fall asleep. Right? This will happen again in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, right before Jesus' crucifixion. So Peter and James and John, they, they fall asleep while they're supposed to be praying. And when they wake up, they're woken probably by this like surprising sudden brightness, and they, they see Jesus standing there radiating the glory of God. And his clothes are as bright as lightning. Jesus is standing there in this glory of brightness, talking with Moses and Elijah. Just imagine what that would be like to wake up to. Like, here's the guy you've been following, and he belong away the Messiah, and he's all of a sudden standing there in this bright light, and he's talking to heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. And just as you're kind of waking up, kind of coming to, like Moses or Elijah is like, well, I guess we better be going. Like, and like this isn't some like Midwest goodbye that's going to go on for a couple hours. Like, Moses and Elijah are really leaving like now. And Peter can't believe that he missed this thing. Like, Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah, and I somehow slept through it. And so he blurts out, basically like, wait, like, let's keep this party going for a little bit. Like, I'll build from shelters, we can all hang out for a little while longer, like, I don't want to miss this. And like, I can certainly understand if I found out that I had somehow missed a conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah because I chose to take a nap when I was supposed to be praying, like, I would have a little regret. 
Like, if ever something was going to trigger FOMO, or at least the, the fear of having missed out, it would be this. There has never been a conversation like this in all of history. Like, if you're a Peter, like, you were invited to that unique, once-in-a-history conversation. And you decided to sleep through it. And so Peter's definitely trying to create a scenario where Moses and Elijah will stay. But it doesn't work. We pick up in verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So this, this event is commonly referred to as the transfiguration. That, that word comes from Matthew and Mark's account where they say that Jesus was transfigured. Luke doesn't use that word. He just tells us that the, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as flashing lightning. But it's the same event. And it's a really important event because like, this event plays a key role in answering the one main question that's at the heart of Luke's Gospel. Like, Luke's Gospel is all about answering the question, who is Jesus? In the introduction to the Gospel, he writes to the person who's kind of commissioning him to write this. He says, like, I write this so that you basically can know who Jesus is. That's what this book is all about. And little by little, Luke has been revealing more and more for us about who this Jesus is. And we've seen different groups kind of give their input into who they think Jesus is. Some of them have been right, some of them have been wrong, but they've all kind of given their input. Luke has shown us what the demons believe about Jesus, and at his birth we saw what the angels believe about Jesus. Luke has told us what the crowds believe about Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we saw how the disciples had finally come to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah. And after that, Jesus even gave his own understanding of who he is, right? telling them that while he is the Messiah, he will not be a military-type ruler, but instead a, a suffering Messiah. So we've seen all these perspectives on who Jesus is. But in this passage, we get one more perspective. And it's a, an important perspective. We get the perspective of God the Father himself. The transfiguration, this event, right? It's God the Father's answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, God the Father orchestrates this event in order to communicate some vital truths about who Jesus is. And in particular, this morning I want to see three, three things that we learn about Jesus from this event. And the first thing I want to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So as, as Jesus is transfigured, Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah appear with him. But the question is, like, why those two? Why Moses and Elijah? Or why only those two? Why not Abraham? Why not Noah? Why not David? Why not Isaiah? Like they all have vital roles to play in 
the Old Testament, they all have vital parole to play in the work God has done throughout history. Why not those guys too? I think like the, Moses, the selection of Moses and Elijah was not coincidental. Because together they represent the entire Old Testament. In Jesus' time, like it was common to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of their scripture as the law and the prophets. And Moses, as the great lawgiver who went up Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments, like he represents the law. And Elijah, as one of the great Old Testament prophets, he stands for the prophets as a whole. Right? And so together, these two men represent the law and the prophets, or the whole Old Testament. And so they stand. These two men, representing the whole Old Testament, have a conversation with Jesus. And what do they talk about? Verse 31 tells us, they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring about, bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, if you're like me and you first read that, you assume that when they're talking about Jesus' departure, they're talking about Jesus' departure from earth, like namely his death and then ascension. And they are talking about that, but there's a double meaning going on here. Because that word departure is not the one that would typically be used in Greek to talk about death. Instead, that word departure there is the Greek word exodus. Like of all the topics that these two Old Testament figures could talk to Jesus about, like they chose his exodus. And like that should ring a bell. Like Moses, of course, was very familiar with an exodus. He led the Israelites, out of captivity to the Egyptians. That's the first Exodus. He, he has a book that he wrote called Exodus. But now Jesus comes, and according to this conversation, he is going to lead God's people through a new Exodus. But in this Exodus, like, Jesus wouldn't just lead his people out of, a, out of slavery to a foreign power. He would lead God's people out of slavery to sin. So in short, like Jesus came to fulfill what Moses started in the first Exodus. In Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. And in Matthew 5:17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And at the end of the book of Luke, after his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to some of his disciples. And we're told that in that conversation, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The exodus that Moses led the Israelites through was not an end in and of itself. It served to point forward to Jesus and the ultimate exodus that Jesus would lead. The Old Testament exists, first and foremost, not to teach us rules about how to live, but to point us forward to Jesus. That's what the exodus does. And we see another example of that here in this passage. 
So just, just think about this. Like, here is Jesus going up a mountain. He encounters God, and his appearance changes. He's bright light. This should sound familiar if you know your Old Testament to what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain, he meets with God, and as he's coming down, we're told, Moses was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And so Moses had to put a veil on his face because the people of Israel were afraid of coming into contact with even the radiating glory of God. So, like, these are similar stories. Like, they both go up a mountain, encounter God, and have their appearance changed. But there's also important differences. Like, Moses, when he goes up, he radiates, he reflects the glory of God because he stood in God's presence. And then he brings God's written word down to his people in the form of the Ten Commandments. On the other hand, Jesus is transfigured. Like, the change comes not from reflecting God's glory, but from within himself. Like, and the disciples with Jesus on a mountain, right, they got a peek into a, a present reality that's not often seen during Jesus' life on earth. They get a peek into the spiritual reality that Jesus is God. Right? When they see Jesus transfigured, they're not seeing God's reflected glory. They're seeing Jesus as God himself shining. When Jesus' appearance, is cha- when Jesus appearance changes right, to show God's glory, it's not a reflected glory as it was with Moses. And when the Father interacts with Jesus, like, he doesn't just give Jesus a list of commands like he did with Moses. Instead, he says simply, This is my Son, whom I have, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. The Father has no need to give Jesus words that have divine authority. Because Jesus' own words carry that divine authority in themselves. Like, Jesus does not bring down God's words the way Moses does on a tablet. Jesus' words are the word of God. And that leads us to a second thing we see about Jesus in this passage. That he's not only the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he is also superior to the law and the prophets. When Peter, when Peter wakes up and he finds Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, he makes the offer we mentioned a minute ago. He says, I'll make three shelters, one for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, and one for you, Elijah. And notice, when he says that, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything about making a shelter for himself or for James or for John. He, he seems to understand, like, we, the disciples, are not worthy of the same kind of honor as, as Moses or Elijah or Jesus. So we're, we don't need shelters. It'll just be for you three. But right after he makes that statement, like, Luke makes an interesting parenthetical statement. Luke says, he did not know what he was saying. Like, basically saying, like, what Peter said was wrong or incorrect or not right. And so the question becomes, like, what was wrong with what Peter said? I think the biggest problem with what Peter said was that he was putting Moses and Elijah on the same level of worthiness as Jesus. 
That's as if Jesus is just the next in line of great prophets. Like there was Moses, and there's Elijah, and now there's Jesus. And they're all kind of on the same plane. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is vastly superior to any who came before him. He is altogether unique. He's not just the next in line. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house had greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. Or as one commentator puts it, when Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah, he was not consulting with his colleagues. And it's, it's no coincidence that right after Peter makes this offer, God enveloped the whole group in a cloud, a cloud of his glory, and he speaks, and when the, when he, when the cloud recedes, the only person left from that three is Jesus. Jesus is greater and better than anything the Old Testament has to offer. The laws that Moses carried down from Mount Sinai were given to show God people how to live, yes. But more importantly, they were given to show us that we can't live up to what God wants us to be, to what God calls us to in terms of His law. And so we need something greater than Moses in order to live up to what God calls us to. We need something greater. But it's kind of hard to imagine. Like, what could possibly be greater than Moses? Like, he's this man who spoke to God face to face. The man to whom God gave the Ten Commandments. A man who God equipped and enabled to lead a group of slaves out of captivity to a military superpower. What could be greater than that? And of course, the only thing that could be greater than that is if God sent His own Son. And that's just what He did. And that ultimately is God the Father's answer to who is Jesus. Again, verse 35 says, A voice came from the clouds saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. Jesus is, above all else, God's Son. Shortly before He was crucified, Jesus would tell a parable where He says this, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then He rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, He sent His servants to the tenants to collect His fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
So in this parable, right, the servants represent all the prophets that God sent to Israel in order to try to get them to turn back to God. But time and time again, the people of Israel refuse to listen, refuse to turn back to God, at least for any extended period of time. And so finally, God sent Jesus, His Son. But people still did not listen, even to God's own Son, until they killed that Son. And like, the striking thing is, right, that Jesus tells this parable before His death. Right? He knows what's coming. The Father knew what fate He was sending His own Son to. The Son knew what fate awaited Him when He came down. Yet they did it anyway. Because it's the only way for us to receive eternal life. If you've been around the church or Christian for like more than 15 seconds, but everyone knows John 3.16. Like we know it so well, it's so ingrained in our subconscious that it's like easy to not think too hard about what those words mean sometimes. But I think it's worth reflecting on just for a moment, like in light of the fact that God just declared Jesus His Son. Like, why would God send His Son? Like John tells us, for God so loved the world, each of us, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our sin, our rejection of God, means that we deserve eternal death. But despite our sin, despite our rejection, God still loved us enough to send Jesus, His one and only Son. God did that knowing we would reject Him. Knowing we would kill His Son. Yet He still did it so that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. That's great love. Like to, to be honest, like as I, I wrote this sermon this week, like I, I struggled. Like, like this is the Transfiguration. This is one of the more significant events in the Bible, according to all the smart people. Like, like I was like, sure, there's got to be some profound thing I can say, some fresh way I can say the same old profound truth over again. I like struggle with how can I do this? How can I say these things in a in a way that would kind of grab our attention while still being faithful to the text. And I struggle with, like, how can I encourage us to apply this passage to our lives? Like, I just struggle with that question, like, how can I do this? And as I, as I wrestled, I kept coming back right, to that one verse, to God's statement here. Right? This is my Son, whom I've chosen. Listen to Him. It just it struck me. Like, frankly, at like five o'clock this morning, I was still wrestling with it. Like, it just struck me. Like, sometimes we don't need fresh. Sometimes we don't need new ways to say the same old truths. Sometimes we don't need new ideas about how to apply God's word. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of the simple and obvious truths that are found in these words. They can be so easy to forget. So I just want to ask two 
simple questions rooted in God's statement. And the first is this. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son? Not that he's another mighty prophet like Moses and Elijah, but that he is really God's Son sent from heaven in order to save you from your sins so that by believing in him you can have eternal life. Like, I don't just ask that for any of us who are here who might be new to church. I'm asking that for each of us, no matter how long you've been coming. Like, Peter and James and John had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they still needed further instruction to remind them that Jesus was the altogether unique Son of God. So I don't want to assume, just because you've been coming to church for so long, that you've got this thing nailed. So I just ask each of us sitting here, do you believe that a real person, Jesus, lived on this earth, lived a sinless life, and was really God's Son? That He really died? That He really rose again three days later for the forgiveness of our sins? And if the answer to that question is yes, then question two is quite simple. Do you listen to him? Do you read the Bible, first of all? Like, do you spend time reading his word? And when you read it, do you understand that it really is Jesus' word and then do you seek to live out what he says in the Bible? Is Jesus really your authority, your final, ultimate authority on what is right and what is wrong? Do Jesus' words have more weight than anything culture might tell you? Do Jesus' words have more weight than anything a government or a political party might tell you? Do Jesus' words have more weight, more authority than anything your own heart or desires might tell you? Do you listen to Jesus always or only when it's convenient? He is really God's Son. And He deserves our obedience in everything He says. Not just the stuff we like. And if you're like me, like, you have moments of thinking, like, He says some hard stuff. Like, stuff I don't like, don't want to obey, frankly, sometimes. But like, it would sure be a lot easier to obey if I could have been with Peter at the Transfiguration. If I could have heard with my own ear God say, this is my son, listen to him. It would be so much easier just to have been there. But listen to what Peter says in the book of Second Peter. He's speaking of himself and he says, We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking about the transfiguration. We were there. But then he says this, And... We had the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He calls the words of the Bible, the words that we have for us, more fully confirmed than what he experienced on that mountain. 
What we have in the Bible is a far more complete picture than that brief glimpse of, that Peter got on that mountain. What we have in the Bible is a far more permanent experience than what Peter got in that brief moment on that mountain. We have Jesus' word, the word of God, complete and preserved to us every time we pick up the Bible. We know what God calls us to. We know what Jesus says. So let's listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it can be tempting, at least for me, to want to interweave my own preferences, my own opinions, my own thoughts in with what the Bible teaches. It would be quicker to obey when it's convenient or easy and slow to obey when it's hard. God, would you give each of us here a deep, abiding sense that Jesus, truly your Son who comes bearing your word, and so we have to listen to him in everything he says. God, would you give us a desire to pick up your word and to read it and to read it as the word of God, not as suggestion, not as something to do to check something off a to-do list, but to read it as your word that is given to us for our good. God, we look forward to the day And we will see Jesus in all his glory the way Peter and James and John saw him on this mountain. And we will stand with Moses and Elijah in your glory on the new heavens and the new earth. But until that day comes, God, would you fill us with the desire to live out your word, to live out the life you have called us to live to see your kingdom and your glory advance here on earth in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, among our friends. God, give us a spirit to listen to your Son. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go from here, Would you go firm in the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? And would you go listening to Him? You are dismissed.